Welcome to the Empire's New Clothes. This is the show where we talk about the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Bradford MacArthur. Today we're speaking with Brent Johnson. And this interview is actually recorded back in March 2020, but we're giving it to you because most of his stuff, number one, is really big picture. It doesn't have much to do with the days and weeks in the market. His uh, perspective is very long term, so nothing's really changed. But also what's fascinating is we spoke about mid-March in the depths of the big stock market correction. And if you listen, he actually says, because of his framework, how he sees the market, he mentions how the market's going to rally back up to all-time highs. I didn't want to cut this stuff out because it's actually quite fascinating going back now and looking at it. Uh, He pretty much nailed that part. But anyways, his framework's wonderful. Brent's an institutional money manager, and he has what some people might have heard of, what's called the dollar milkshake theory. And so he lays a lot of that out here. He dives into the Fed, debt, equities, all these different elements of the markets that are in one part quite complicated, in another part he breaks them down to be quite simple. So let's check it out. Hey there. Hey Brent, how's it going? Good, how are you? Killer, how's your day? Uh, it's been a little crazy, but that's uh, <laughs> that's okay. I actually like it better like that than when it's uh, nothing going on. Yeah, exactly. The easy start, if you could just say your name, one yep. or two sentences of kind of like, what makes Brent Brent in this world? Yep. Okay, so my name is Brent Johnson. I'm from San Francisco. Uh, I live here with my wife and my 11-year-old son. I've been in the uh, financial wealth management business for a little over 20 years now. Um, I have my own independent firm. Um, it's set up that way because I didn't want to be part of a big institutionalized traditional Wall Street thinking firm. Um, I wanted to be independent to kind of be able to kind of think for myself and kind of analyze the world from a big picture standpoint rather than being beholden to what uh, some other guy at some other firm was telling me to do. Um, I guess I, I I work with a number of high net worth individuals to kind of help figure out where they're currently at with their portfolio, um, help them try to understand where they're at, where they're trying to get to, or they, they, they tell me where they're trying to get to, and then I help them kind of devise a plan, for lack of a better word, to get there. So I'm always a big picture guy. I try to look at the very big picture, and then and the, the more detailed and down into the weeds we get, uh, I start relying on other people who uh, are maybe more specific on those individual functions or sectors or however you want to talk about it. So uh, when I talk about markets or you know trends or society, you know I, I'm looking for big kind of overall trends and moves as opposed to you know the day-to-day minor details. How do you see? the financial and economic systems different today than they were 50 years ago? Uh, Well, one thing, they're much bigger. Uh, They're much bigger. Uh, More people participate in it now. So what I mean by that is it used to be, um, well, let's say 100 years ago or 80 years ago, the the U.S. economy was much more manufacturing-based and much more uh, agrarian, you know, rural. Uh, and over the last, call it 50 to 100 years, it's become much more uh, developed. And as a result, more people participate in the financial markets today than they did typically 
you know, 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, I would say, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, it wasn't normal for the average everyday guy to have exposure to stocks. You know, maybe they have a savings account, maybe they had a company pension plan. Uh, but today, you know, it's not uncommon at all for people to have uh, exposure to U.S. equities. Ex even if you only have $500, maybe they have, a, you know, with the rise of technology and the way to reach more people and the way to mass market it to, you know, a, a larger number of people. And, you know, they, 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 the, their margins are very small, but they, 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 they make up for it in volume. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for college kids to have brokerage accounts and they can trade it online on their phone. So the exposure to the broad stock market, I think, is much greater um, than it, today than it was, you know, 50 years ago. Not only that, but it's more in some ways it's more efficient, but in some ways it's more. Uh, what's the right way to say it? Fragile, maybe. Um, and, you know, the last month or so is a good example of this. Everything. So there's two big um, methods for managing money in just in a broad sense. One is called active management and the other is called passive management. And so what I mean by that is active management is when there is an investment manager a portfolio manager who's going out doing his own research and picking individual stocks that he thinks are right. And he will sell when he thinks it's appropriate and he will buy when he thinks it's appropriate. And maybe he'll hold cash because he thinks things are getting risky. The, the opposite of that is passive management and passive management means we're just going to buy the index. And when, when I say we're going to buy the index, we're going to buy the S and P 500 or we're going to buy the Dow Jones and whatever moves the bat that they do, we're going to do. And if you give, if cash is in the account, we're going to buy. And if somebody asks for cash, we're going to sell. We're not going to think about which company is the best to sell or if this is the right time to sell. It's literally just the simplest algorithm in the world. If there's cash, you buy. And if you need cash, you sell. And so what that does is it, it creates a very big herd mentality. Everybody is doing the same thing. And when everybody's doing the same thing, generally you want to do the opposite. Uh, because not everybody can be right all the time. They could be right for a long time. So it's, it's good to find out what everybody's going to be doing to identify trends. But when absolutely everybody's doing the same thing, then you probably want to look at the other side of it. Um, and so in the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is when people start to sell, there's no thought process going into it. They're not looking for the best company to sell or the worst company to sell, or let's maybe this company... Um, has something that will do very well over the next two weeks, but um, or, or their management has made some decision that would make them be better prepared for this than another company. But it just doesn't matter because we're just selling. So when one person starts to sell, then everybody starts to sell. And then when they get more sell orders, then they have to sell more. And it becomes a very much an automated process as opposed to a thinking process. Um, and it's a panic. What we've had the last couple of weeks is, is, is the very definition of a panic. But the structure of the market today makes markets more susceptible to panics. The opposite, it also makes it more susceptible to booms. You know, in the last couple of years, we have saw this huge run up in the stock market for the same reason. Um, everybody was making money. So everybody kept contributing to their 401ks. Everybody kept adding money to their brokerage accounts. And going back to that very simple algorithm, if there's cash in it, you buy. And when everybody keeps buying, it keeps pushing the price up. 
but when the tipping point comes, it reverses. Now, this is a very long way of answering your question of what's different today. Those are the two major things that I see, more broad participation and the influence of technology and passive management. To kind of summarize in my own words, and you tell me if this is what I'm hearing, is you're kind of saying the stock market, the financial markets, was more diverse and now it's more homogenous in really broad strokes of people are being I, more herd-like and more on or off instead of more cognizant. That's, right. or... that's exactly right. That's a very good, that, that's a good way of summarizing it in very general terms. Now there's always exceptions to that rule, but in general terms, I think that's a very good way of saying it. And do you think that's why we saw everything sell and things correlated instead of the, you know, oh, the 60-40 bond equities, it does this yeah. or and gold yeah. and all. Well, so yes, to a certain extent, yes. But what, what we've gotten into in the last two or three weeks is really kind of my wheelhouse, for lack of a better word, because for the past couple of years, I've been saying we are moving towards a currency crisis and we're moving towards a liquidity. And that currency crisis is going to be is going to be involved with a liquidity crisis. And As in like when they're similar or well or they're acting in, it, in, in tandem in a sense so, uh, in tandem okay, in gotcha. tandem i think the liquid i think the the currency crisis is the cause of the lack of liquidity so a current the the lack of a currency supply is leading to a lack of currency liquidity which is leading to a lack of liquidity in the markets and so it is literally sell everything it doesn't matter when they so in the last couple of weeks, initially you saw stocks sell, gold sell, commodities sell, and bonds initially did good. But things kept going down so much. Now it's just literally the most important thing in the world is the US dollar. Everybody needs dollars. They may want gold. They may want a pair of shoes. They may want to own stocks. They may want to put gas in their car but they have to have dollars. So it's a difference between what you want and what you absolutely need. And on a global scale, right now, everybody needs dollars. And so it doesn't matter what you're selling, sell whatever you can, just get me dollars. And that that's the kind of the very definition of a panic. Doesn't matter the price, doesn't matter how, just get me liquid. And there's just not, there's just not enough liquidity go, to go around. So the thing that's liquid goes up in price, and everything that's illiquid goes down in price. So assets are going down in price, and that liquidity, the dollars, are going up in price. So that that's what we've seen the last couple of weeks. Just indiscriminate selling because they have to get liquidity. What do people do with those dollars? I, that yeah. makes so much sense what you're saying, but yeah. why do they want dollars and what do they okay. do with them? So the, 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 this will lead into why I've been saying that we're going to have the currency crisis to begin with. Um, and and to understand this part, you're going to kind of need to understand the structure of the monetary system itself, and you're going to kind of have to understand central banking. Over the last hundred years, we've left a gold standard in various stages, um, and then as of 1971, we became a completely fiat currency-based monetary system, the whole world. Uh, it kind of happened in stages between 1910 and 1970, but as of 1970, just free-floating currencies. They're not anchored to anything. Um, and the U.S. dollar 
became the world reserve currency after World War II. It was backed by gold until 1971, but after 1971, it delinked from gold, but it stayed the world reserve currency. Now, some people say it's not backed by anything, and even I, I make that comment from time to time, but the reality is it's backed by the U.S. military. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's backed by the I U.S. Mean, military. And is, it's, and it's is, that, is that a joke, or is there, is there somewhat seriousness in No, the, it, I say it jokingly, but there's, there, there, it's also true. Um, if you have not read the books Creature from Jekyll Island, you should read that book. And if you have not read the book um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you should read that book. Because that will, in very simple terms, explain to you. Now, again, you don't have to believe everything in there, but it will give you broad strokes about, in a very simple way, how things actually work. Okay. Um, and so, all currently, the way money gets into the system is it's loaned into existence. So, what that means is that it's fractional reserve banking. So let's say there's $4 trillion of actual dollars that actually exist in, a, in either physical form or reserves, meaning they're not spent. But that, that's the base money. That's the monetary base. All other money, all other dollars in existence are essentially levered off of that $4 trillion. Um, but there's different ways to measure um, the total glo- because because an example if 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 you pay me a hundred dollars and I put the hundred dollars in the bank, the bank doesn't keep my hundred dollars. They loan out ninety, right? And they give the ninety dollars to you. You take out a loan. You 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 get the ninety dollars. You go buy a car, right? And then the guy that you sold the car to takes that ninety dollars and puts it in the bank. And that bank loans out eighty one. And somebody takes that eighty one dollars and they go on a vacation. And, you know, they go to Disneyland and Disneyland takes that $81 and puts it in the bank and somebody takes 72 against it. But it all goes back to that original $100 that was deposited in the bank. So it's just one big daisy chain of loans. Now, imagine that, um, you know, amplified by trillions and trillions of dollars. So essentially there's trillions of dollars of demand out there, but there's only $4 trillion that actually exist. So think of it this way. Uh, you've probably heard about the U S national debt being $22 trillion or whatever the number is. That's essentially demand for dollars. Somebody that though that 20 trillion of debt is somebody's asset, right? So the, whoever owns that asset, they, they, they see that as their money. Right. So, but again, there's only 4 trillion that actually exists. So, you know, and not only that, but it's the interest each year to pay the interest on that $20 trillion a year uh, of debt is interest or is, is demand for dollars. Now that would be a problem in and of itself, but because the U S dollar is the world reserve currency, that means that people outside the United States that have nothing to do with the United States when they transact with each other, oftentimes it's done in dollars. So if a Brazilian copper mine or a you know, Chilean copper mine is financed by a bank in Japan and sells its copper in China, it, it, that, there's probably the invoices going back and forth between the three entities 
is most likely denominated in U.S. dollars. Um, part of the reason is because that's what the U.S. said would be done after World War II. Uh, we were the hegemon, we're the global power. Um, and then it's also because, you know, we enforce it with our military it, because it creates a demand for dollars. It allows us to print dollars. The rest of the world can't print dollars, but we can print dollars. So it's a privilege for us to be able to print our own currency. Um, no other country can print our currency. They can print their own currencies, but they can't print the dollars. So what has happened uh, over the last 10 years is this is getting a little confusing, but uh, stay with me. After the big crisis in 2008, the global financial crisis, what everybody did was they didn't write down all the bad loans and start all over. They just borrowed more on top of it. They bailed them out, right? So now the 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 the, the problem, the debts got bigger, and they pushed them down the road, but they didn't actually solve them. So it went to the sovereign level. That's right. So it went to the sovereign level. That's right. And so. What happened, and then what happened over the last 10 years is that because the big way that they were going to solve all this was they were going to print or expand credit and devalue the dollar. Or, you know, if you increase the supply of currency, the value of the currency should fall. Ah, uh, but it hasn't. Exactly. But a lot of these countries, so when you're, when, when you're a foreign country, and let's say you're a smaller country, let's say you're the Philippines or you're Colombia or you're Brazil or Turkey or whatever it is, and you go to raise money— you can either raise money in your local currency, let's call it, say the Turkish lira, or you can raise money in dollars. If you raise money in lira, there won't be as much demand because nobody really needs the lira. And so therefore you will pay a higher interest rate. But if you issue it in dollars, there's much more demand for dollars. There will be a higher demand for these Turkish bonds. And so they will get a lower interest rate. So that the, the the ability to borrow at a lower interest rate and the idea that the current the dollar was going to lose value because of all the money printing, entities outside the United States increased their dollar debt, dollar denominated debt to thirteen trillion dollars. So our our national debt's twenty two trillion, but entities outside the United States owe thirteen trillion. And the number is actually probably bigger than that, but that's that's just the easily quantifiable number. And so, and so that's every, what you're saying. It's that's their money on one side yeah. of that transaction. So it's another. That's right. That's right. And so what's happening now is the idea was that over the last 10 years, all this money printing was going to spur growth. Economies would grow. Revenues would rise. The value of the dollar would fall and it would be easier to pay that debt off. But what's happened is the exact opposite. The revenues didn't rise. They fell. And the value of the dollar didn't fall, it rose. So instead of going this way and being easy to pay off, it went this way and it's much harder to pay off. And so everybody still needs dollars, but they're harder to get because they're more expensive. Not only that, but what's happened with the economies in the last 10 years is that there's, okay, there's a theory called Triffin's Dilemma. So Triffin's dilemma, there was an economist back in the 60s, 70s, and he basically said, you know, when you have a single reserve currency that the rest of the world uses, um, it requires the country of the global reserve currency to run a trade deficit and the rest of the countries to run a trade surplus because we need to be supplying dollars to the rest of the world to use. Because that's the main export of that country. 
Exactly. Our main export is dollars as we buy goods from all over the world. We buy their goods. We send them our dollars. That's how they get their dollars. They service their debt. They pay their bills. They buy their commodities or whatever they need to put their businesses. Then they sell it back to us and we give them more dollars and it's just a recycling thing. Looking at it in that sense of almost like a good, if the goods, the dollars aren't being exported, they become expensive outside exactly. of the system exactly so people want that expensive thing exactly they need it Ex exactly and so on so this goes back to triffin's dilemma he says eventually when you have a global reserve currency that's issued by a single country eventually it can go on for a long time but eventually you will run into a situation where the needs of the domestic economy of the global reserve currency comes into conflict with the needs of the international community who needs the dollars or the global reserve currency to operate. And that's exactly what we have now. Um, and a big part of that is Donald Trump. What's his, what's his biggest saying? Make America great again. Mm -hmm. He'll say, listen, I'm happy to help China. I'm happy to help France. I'm happy to help your way, but I want to help the United States first, right? We get helped first. We get treated fairly. Now, it doesn't matter if you believe this or not. I'm just telling you, this is you know, this is reality of what he says, right? And he's got the biggest hammer, right? And so he says, you know, we're not going to be treated unfairly anymore. Now, many people think we haven't been treated unfairly. Many people think we've had the, all the advantages. But Trump doesn't see it that way. And so he is saying, we are going to flip this around. We are going to get treated best first. And then if you guys get treated well, that's great but that's not my primary objective. This is the very heart of Triffin's dilemma. He it's, wants it's, to build it's like, up... It's a conflict of essentially the desires and the needs of the, the country that's got yep. the currency and the rest of the yep. world. That's right. On an, so it's, it's somewhat like an, well, a transaction is always a battle in a sense because you're setting price, yeah. but it, yeah. it's somewhat of a global economic yeah. friction. Yeah, that's right. And And the important thing to remember is that over the last 50 years... Because we were the global um, reserve currency and because we had all these, we, 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 companies would go overseas because we had the highest standard of living. We had the highest wages. Companies would go overseas to manufacture their products. So we had this export of manufacturing as well, mm. right? And so Trump has said that was a big mistake. It was short-term positive, but long-term a disaster. I'm going to re... I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to bring manufacturing back to the United States. I'm going to do the same thing to other countries that they do to us. You know, they put all these tariffs on us if we export to them, but we don't put tariffs on them. We're going to do it equally now. Um, that will help bring manufacturing back to the United States. So the, the, again, this is literally, he's putting up barriers to dollars flowing, mm -hmm. right? And the less that dollars flow, the harder they are to come by. The harder they are to come by means supply is restricted. If restrict, supply is restricted, but demand stays the same, which it does because the debts are bigger, you get a, you get a uh, formula for price of the dollar to rise. And so that's what we're seeing now. Over the last two or three weeks, the dollar has for, – for the last two or three years, it's kind of gone sideways in a band. But in the last two or three weeks, it started to break out to the upside of that band. And the debts are so big that, in my opinion, that debt is demand for dollars. 
and there's just not a big enough supply for them. And as everybody clamors for that supply, it'll push the dollar price higher. Um, and so my argument is that the central banks, the Fed included, will institute all these policies to try to weaken the dollar. But the problem is just so big, it's going to overwhelm them because demand. And this is the thing, the, the policies that they are using to prevent the crisis, all they do is make the debts even bigger. It doesn't get rid of them. It just makes them bigger. So even if they get it under control now, two or three or four or five or 10 years from now, we'll be right back where we are now because it doesn't actually solve the underlying problem. Um, and so it's my belief that over the next two or three years, this crisis will get worse. Um, and I think this is a, have you heard about my dollar milkshake theory? Yep. Okay. So this is my dollar milkshake theory is that as the dollar gets stronger, it puts pressure on the rest of the world. They buy dollars as a safe haven because they need them, but also because they would rather invest in the United States than somewhere else because the dollar getting stronger puts a tremendous pressure on their economies to grow. So if they're overseas and, may, and they have any capital at all, they get a better return by investing in the United States than investing locally. They get a higher return on their cash than they get locally. And so as that dollar flows into the United States, then it finds its way its way into U.S. dollar asset prices. So asset prices rise, which makes us look even more attractive. Now even more people want to invest, so they send even more capital. It takes even more capital away from the rest of the world, which puts even more downward pressure, more upward pressure on the U.S. And so I think we get this huge divergence over the next couple of years where we get this huge blow off top in equities. And remember what I was talking about earlier about if there's cash in the account, you just buy. Mm -hmm. I think as that money comes into the U.S. and it ends up in those accounts, it hits that account. It says now there's cash you buy. So it, you know, it ramps that up. And, you know, overseas, as, as people ask for cash to get to, to get out of those countries, they have the same dynamics. If there's a request to sell or if there's a request for cash, you sell. So they sell U.S. buy. So it becomes this, you know, everywhere you look, it's 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 it. The design of the system. Oh, here's the other part. Sorry. The way that money flows around the world when it gets from Japan to South Africa to Russia to the United States, it's not flown on airplanes. It travels electronically over these channels that have already been built. It's not emailed. It's not PayPal, right? There, there's, there's, there's specific way. There's specific, yeah. There's specific wires. There's specific channels through which all global capital flows, and those channels because the U.S. is the world reserve currency, are essentially going through U.S. banks. If somebody wires money from Ecuador to New Guinea or from Ecuador to Australia, it probably goes through a U.S. banking system of some kind, a clearance bank or whatever it is. The U.S. controls those channels. So you've got the demand as a safe haven. You've got the demand to pay debts. You've got demand because all contracts globally are almost all of them are denominated in dollars. You've got the payment system via which you can send money overseas goes through U.S. banks. And then you've got the U.S. military enforcing it all. So it's, it's, it's the perfect storm of demand for dollars, there being no other choice of anywhere else to go, and a lack of supply. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that's so and so so and we we hit this 
all at the same time as we're going through um, from a bigger societal aspect, the fourth turning. Are you familiar with the fourth turning? Yeah. It's not exactly bedtime reading. No. Okay. So, but, you know, and so you have people losing faith in the traditional institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, Then maybe they're losing faith in the traditional family structures. Maybe, uh, you know, there's not the same patriotism that there used to be. Uh, all these kind of things, right? So you have all this stuff happening in the midst of a fourth turning, and you have all these global relationships that are breaking down. They're not getting tighter, they're breaking down. Mm -hmm. And think about this virus. The whole reason that the euro was created in the first place was a way to unite a divided Europe. Mm. And, you know, for centuries, these different countries had been fighting with each other the one way to stop them fighting with each other was to get them to all be on the same team. And as part of that Euro thing, they have this agreement called the Schengen agreement, which means free travel within Europe. It's kind of like how we have free travel in the United States. You can drive from Nebraska to Florida and you don't have to stop at every state border and do border checks and passport controls. You know, it's free travel. So it's a similar thing with this Schengen agreement in Europe. But now this virus is throwing up all the borders again because if Italy's having this huge problem with the outbreak of the virus, Switzerland doesn't want the Italians freely coming over their border. And so you've got these countries that are throwing up the borders again, no more free travel. So again, this is, this is all fourth turning stuff, right? Now, I don't know if anybody knew it was going to be caused by a virus, but you could kind of see it heading this direction and this virus has just been an accelerant on all of it. Hmm. If people can't flow freely, then money's not going to flow as freely. And so part of the monetary system is the stock of money. And the other part of the monetary system is the velocity of money. How often does the existing money circulate? So if everybody, let's say four different people had to make an interest payment this week on the debt that they had, right? Well, if I pay you, and you owe John, and then you pay John your interest to him, but say John owes Mark, so then John takes the dollar you gave him, and he pays Mark. Well, Mark owes a dollar to Peter, so he pays Peter, and Peter owes me $5, so he pays me a dollar. Well, that $1 has now satisfied five different people's interest payment in, in less than a week, right? So if that velocity is really high, you don't need as much supply. But if, if, if I don't pay you, in the first place, then you can't play John and John can't pay Mark and Mark can't pay Peter and Peter can't pay me. So as soon as one or two people hoard dollars and stop the velocity, it throws a wrench in the whole system. And that's what's happening right now with, with all these reactions to the coronavirus, everybody's staying home. Nobody's traveling. Nobody's flying. Nobody's staying in hotels. Nobody's out there buying refrigerators. You know what I mean? It's like the velocity the velo- the velocity of money is collapsing. So right now the impact of the virus is deflationary. Extremely deflationary. Extremely. And they're they're printing currency like crazy because when there's no velocity, you have to plug you the hole with You need a larger money market. supply in a sense. Yeah. You, you think of it this way, every year when you, when you have a when you when money loan money's loaned into existence, 
let's, let's pretend it's an enclosed system. Let's pretend we go into a conference room and we lock the doors and we lock the windows. Nobody can get in and nobody can get out. And then we start this process. And for the first week, we loan money into existence. Okay. And then we fast forward a year and now interest is due on all those loans, right? Again, it's a closed system. There's no money from outside. If nobody is spending and there's no velocity, nobody gets paid interest hmm. because it's not circulating. The only way to keep the system from collapsing is if you bring some new money in from outside the room. You open the door, you let some new money, and that's the Federal Reserve or the central banks injecting new money that they printed out of thin air. Hmm. If there's no velocity, then new supply has to come in to plug that hole of all the interest that needs to be paid. So that's what you're seeing happen right now with the QE and the liquidity injections and the swap lines. They're trying to plug that hole that the collapse in velocity is creating. In your example of we've got a closed system, loans, money's been loaned into existence, interest is due. And so when you have a decrease in spending or the velocity of money, and you also have people can't even pay their debts back. Is that kind of a double whammy sucking? And so it's two reasons why you would need money to come in from the outside. That's right. And not only that, like when, when somebody doesn't pay and they default, it goes back to that example. Like if I didn't pay you, then you couldn't pay Mark and Mark couldn't pay Peter and Peter couldn't pay Larry and Larry couldn't pay me. One default leads to more defaults. And as more people default, the supply of money collapses. So it's not just that demand is increasing, it's that supply is collapsing. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, so so to your point, the double whammy. A worst case scenario after that fact is, let's say velocity starts increasing and no one's defaulting anymore. Yeah. But the money supply is swollen. Is that when you get inflation? That's, that's when you get the inflation that you can't control anymore. Yes. So in that example, we're kind of walking down this path of we're stimulating as things, loans are failing, and then also velocity decreasing and dumping money in. And so almost the last thing you would want to see is a a good recovery with a healthy velocity of money. Big, 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 big picture. (laughs) Well, and initially, that's exactly what you need. Exactly. That's what this goes back to. I don't know if I said this earlier, but I think I was talking to somebody else and I was talking about with this whole COVID-19 virus thing is I kind of feel like we're getting to the point where the medicine is worse than the disease. And so it's kind of similar, like the stimulus is what is needed to not so that the patient doesn't die. But once they're healthy, it's very hard to get them off that drug. They get addicted to it. And if they stay on it, you get the hyper, you get the high, very high levels of inflation and then it gets away from me and you have hyperinflation. But the, here's the here's the thing is I think what a lot of people forget is that whenever these programs get announced, everybody, everybody who has studied history very wisely says this is going to end really badly. This is going to be hyperinflation. And they're absolutely correct. But they're absolutely way too early. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go from this to that overnight. The hole to plug is so enormous. They've got to print a lot more than they've already printed. And then it's hyperinflation is different than regular. Like you could have 10 or 15% inflation. That's not hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is 1,000% or 10,000% or whatever the number is. And hyperinflation comes when you lose complete confidence in the government that's issuing the currency. Just nobody trusts it anymore, right? 
Um, you can have very high levels of inflation without it being anywhere close to hyperinflation. Hmm. Now, eventually, eventually all fiat currency dies. It gets inflated away. You know, I think anybody who studied history knows that. But it, it but it's it's much easier for that to happen in a periphery economy like Venezuela or Turkey or the Philippines or Vietnam or, you know, some smaller country that doesn't have the demand for its currency. The fact is we have so much demand for our currency that it first has to satisfy all that demand. And then once demand is satisfied, then you've got excess. And then when you've got too much excess and you've got velocity, then you get inflation. And then when nobody trusts the government anymore, then you get hyperinflation. But there's there's stages. And I think a lot of people want to go from right right now we have almost hyper deflation. Yeah. The the supply of money is collapsing at an incredible rate. And I think a lot of people are saying, Holy cow, this is gonna to lead to hyperinflation, which is completely correct. But we're just not there yet. And you don't get it's not like uh, Star Trek where you're here and you just, you know, they beam you up and you go from hyper deflation to hyperinflation. You know, there's there's a there's a road you kind of have to travel. And I don't even I don't even think we've stopped the downward spiral yet. So forget about inflation right now. Let's let's just stop going down. And then once we start going up, then, you know, start thinking about inflation. That whole story you laid out of more deflation, eventually inflation, not trust the government, all this stuff. Is that even in our lifetimes? Is that in a decade? Is that in four decades? When you ask that question, you need to, whoever's thinking about it needs to think about, are we talking about it from a U.S. perspective or are we talking about it from an Australian perspective or a Canadian perspective or, you know, South African perspective? Because we are, the the Fed is not the only central bank that's going to print an incredible amount of currency, right? What I think is going to happen is everybody's going to print an incredible amount of currency. And I think it's more likely that other governments or the people lose faith in their governments before they lose faith in ours. Now, this is not me saying that the U.S. is the greatest place in the world and we are politicians and monetary authorities are so much smarter than everybody else. And, you know, America's exceptionalism, you know, it, it, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if you look at the realities on the ground, as messed up as the United States is and as crazy as our leaders are, you know, I think there's a number of African nations where you could look and you say, well, maybe we're a little bit better than that as far as organization and being able to marshal resources and the ability to, to collect taxes and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so it's very possible that those countries, as their countries come under pressure from the deflation of the needing dollars, that they print their own currency like crazy to make up for it. And so they could have hyperinflation or stagflation in their countries as their revenues don't rise, but the, their cost of inputs in local currency terms just go through the roof. So my point is, is we could have extreme deflation of the economy and hyperinflation of the currency of several other countries very, very soon, maybe in the next six to 12 months. I don't think we'll see the hyperinflation and the depression of our currency or our, our society for another couple of years, because now th th this might, I always think this kind of takes some thinking about like, I think as, as, as capital flows into the United States, it will push the price of the dollar higher, 
But if U.S. asset prices go higher and we actually get a little bit of velocity of money, we can have inflation rising with the dollar getting higher. Mm. A lot of people think the only way to get inflation is for the currency to fall. That's not true. That, that, that's, a, that's a traditional way for it to happen, and it certainly does happen if your currency falls in value. But that's not the only way it can happen. So my point is, is when you ask, are we, is, is this going to happen in our lifetimes? Well, for some people, it may happen very soon, right? Uh, but for people in the U.S., it might take a little bit longer for it to happen. I do think it could happen in the U.S. in our lifetime. I think, I think, I think it likely takes longer for this to play out than most people think. So I think over the next two or three years, the U.S. will see asset price growth, uh, stock market growth, not because the world is getting better, but because the world is getting worse, and it's that that function of that only place for capital to go and squeeze through the only system that exists and enforced by the military. Um, and so I think the rest of the world will come under pressure over the next two or three years. I think the U.S. will rise over the next two or three years. And then I think everybody will realize, you know what, the system is just messed up. It just doesn't work anymore. We can't operate with the dollar this high. Maybe even the U.S. is starting to slow down. They're like, we don't want the dollar this high. This is crazy. And so they come together and do some kind of a plaza accord or some kind of a currency agreement where they reset right off debts and they reset the whole system. And I think at that point, then the dollar loses its value and maybe they have to print the dollar to meet whatever needs. People start to lose faith in the government um, or the, you know, the efficiency of the United States. And then we go through our down years while the rest of the world starts to reflate. You know, we deflate while it, it, it's, there's always going to be some place that's inflating another place. That it's, it's the opposite side of the coin, right? It's, 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 it's got the to same. Go it's something. It, yeah. It's the same thing happening. It's just on, are you on that side of it or that side of it? Hmm. Um, so if you think about inflation, deflation, inflation's on one side of the coin, deflation's on the other side of the corner or a teeter totter, right? Like when somebody's going down, somebody else is going to be going up. And I think, you know, two or three years down the road, it'll flip and the U.S. will start its decline. And I don't know, maybe the next 10 or 15 years, you know, we have our own depression. Again, this is this is speculation. I'm just telling you how I kind of see it potentially playing out. What's the best scenario for the U.S. of how to manage all that? What's the best scenario for the world? And what's the best for what's the best possible outcome for everyone? I think that American citizens should, to the extent possible, you know, cut any expenses you don't absolutely have to have. Uh, I'm not saying go crazy and sell everything you have, because I think U.S. asset prices will rise over the next two or three years. But my point is, is asset prices might not rise because things are getting better. They could rise because they're getting worse. So you just want to be prepared. So whatever you need to do so that you have some extra cash, I think is very wise to do. Um, if you have your portfolio allocated, you know, 60% to the United States and 30% to international and five or 10% to alternative investments or gold or whatever it is, I would cut the international exposure down dramatically, maybe even altogether. Um, I would be very careful about buying long-term bonds because eventually interest rates will rise and that would be very bad for long-term bonds. The thing about bonds is you're probably not going to make a lot of money on bonds at this point, but you have the potential to lose a lot. So I think the asymmetry is net, is bad with bonds in general. It does, I actually think they'll get, make money in the short term, but if you're asking me over the next two or three years, I, I would kind of avoid them. Um, and then I would buy, if you're going to buy equities, I'd buy the big 
blue chip dividend paying stocks because I think those will be most attractive to people overseas. And the whole idea of investing is to get in front of what everybody else is going to buy. So if everybody else around the world is going to be looking for large U.S. dividend paying names, I think that's where I would rather be. Not only that, but those big, large dividend paying companies typically can survive a recession um, better than smaller companies. You know, so just they're just kind of inherently safer in many cases. Um, so I would do that. I would uh, I would definitely own some gold. I don't think gold's going to pay off right away, but I think over the next five or ten years it'll go up an incredible amount. Um, so I think over the next two or three years, if you don't already have some, it's a great time to buy it. I think that you need to be prepared for the day, whether it's two years from now or ten years from now, that the U.S. is no longer the top dog in the world. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to become, you know, a failed nation. Um, but to the extent that you think that we are always going to be the, on top, I would say that's probably not the case. Because um, I think we have a lot of sins that we're going to have to pay for. I just think it's going to take longer for us to have to pay for them than the rest of the world. Um, and then what I would do is, as you make profits over the next two or three years, maybe start to harvest some of those profits, build up a nice portfolio of U.S. dollar cash, and then in two or three years go buy in Canada or Australia or some other country who's been under a lot of pressure, and you can buy you know, Vancouver real estate for 30 cents on the dollar for what it's trading today. You know, you got the thousand foot house in the bad neighborhood in Vancouver that goes for $3 million. You know, it's crazy, but you know, it's so crazy, you know, but two or three years from now, you might be able to buy it for 70% off at that point. Maybe it makes sense, you know, but you need to have the cash to do it. So that's kind of how I would think about it from a U.S. perspective. Uh, the ironic thing is that if I was overseas, I would probably do something pretty similar because <laughs> because I really think the whole world is one trade right now on the dollar. And I think, you know, that if I'm Australian and I can buy Coca-Cola that, you know, pays a three or four percent dividend. And if the Australian dollar loses five, six, seven percent versus the dollar, that's a 10 percent return I made just if Coca-Cola doesn't go anywhere. And if Coca-Cola even goes up five or 10 percent, now all of a sudden I've made 15 or 20 percent. That's pretty good because I think Australia locally is going to be going through a recession. Um, so I, I, if any, no matter where I was in the world, I'd be looking to get out of local currency and get into dollars. Um, I would be trying to buy the biggest, most liquid things because I think liquidity is going to continue to be important. Um, the fundamentals of a small company might be much better than a big company, but I think the bigger company is going to have better liquidity. And I, I really just think liquidity trumps everything right now. Mm. If you're liquid, you're in a much better position than the guy that's not liquid. Um, and then I think, you know, two or three years from now, those countries can start to look to flip it as well. Maybe two or three years from now, their companies will start to uh, reflate, start to come out of their recessions, depressions. And, um, you know, maybe the whole world flips at that point. Um, I do think, you know, if you don't, if you're not denominated in dollars, you should probably buy gold. Probably buy more gold than if you are denominated in dollars. Um, and then I think, I think at some point in the next year or two, we're going to get into a point where dollars and gold rise together versus all other fiat currencies. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people think that the dollar and gold can't rise together. Uh, they can rise together versus everything else, and I think that's probably how it will end up playing out. All of this we're talking about 
in your mind, what is it a story of? Is it a story of repeating the same mistakes we have, people have always done? Is it? Yeah, I mean, it's trust? yeah, it's it's funny. Like the if the if, if students of history, uh, there's this joke that says, you know, students of history are bound to sit by while everybody makes the same mistakes from history again. Like, cause they're all the same stuff plays over and over again. Like, there's. There's that even that verse in the Bible, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's happened now has happened before. Um, you know, booms, busts, wars, revolutions, it's it's all kind of cyclical. And as much as we like to think we've advanced and we've uh, become smarter and more intellectual and we've put safeguards in place to keep it from happening, you know, we've just had the biggest drawdown in the history of the stock market next to the either 1987 or the Great Depression. So that that right there proves that history repeats. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times we've heard about, um, you know, the Great Depression or the another stock market crash like the Great Depression. So everybody's aware of it, but it still happens again because it's the it's the wild horses, right? It's the animal spirits. It's like the greed and the fear. It's like it it, it plays out over and over and over again. Um, I, that said, I, I'm not going to say it's different than this time because I don't think it's different this time, but it's been a very, very long time since we've had uh, a global reserve currency shift, right? And I think at some point in the next 10 or 20 years, we're going to see a global reserve currency shift. And the last time we saw that was in the late, you, you can argue exactly when it happened, probably in the early 1900s when the British pound lost out to the United States, right? And before that, it was probably the late 1700s when France had it. So it, it's always a, you know, that sets long cycles that nobody alive has been through it, but it's nothing new. And so I think we're probably approaching that time when it happens here. And I think the dynamics around that are going to be relatively new or actually extremely new to anybody that's still alive. Um, I think even the people that are read about it and are prepared for it, or think that they're prepared for it are still going to be kind of shocked by some of the things that happen. As in either it happens differently or faster yeah. or slower. Yeah. Yeah. Just... yeah. This has been super fascinating. Thanks awesome. So much well, for thanks. Time. Thanks for, thanks for thinking of me and happy to help. I oh, appreciate it. Yeah. All right. See you, All bud. Right. Have a good day. Here at the empire's new clothes, we believe something big is in America's future, but we don't quite know what. If you'd like to continue the journey with us, like, subscribe, and let us know who you want us to interview next in the comments below. This next decade is going to be crazy, so join us as we try to figure out what's going on, and I look forward to seeing you next week.